letter four of letters on demonology and witchcraft by sir walter scott this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by dion gines salt lake city utah letter four we may premise by observing that the classics had not forgotten to enroll in their mythology a certain species of subordinate deities resembling the modern elves in their habits good old mr gibb of the advocates library whom all lawyers whose youth he assisted in their studies by his knowledge of that noble collection are bound to name with gratitude used to point out amongst the ancient altars under his charge one which is consecrated dius cambestribus and usually added with a wink the fairies ye can this relic of antiquity was discovered near roxburgh castle and a vicinity more delightfully appropriate to the abode of the sylvan deities can hardly be found two rivers of considerable size made yet more remarkable by the fame which has rendered them in some sort classical unite their streams beneath the vestiges of an extensive castle renowned in the wars with england and for the valiant noble and even royal blood which has been shed around and before it a landscape ornamented with the distant village and huge abbey tower of kelso arising out of groves of aged trees the modern mansion of floors with its terrace its woods and its extensive lawn form altogether a kingdom for oberon and titania to reign in or any spirit who before their time might love scenery of which the majesty and even the beauty impress the mind with a sense of awe mingled with pleasure these sylvans satyrs and fauns with whom superstition peopled the lofty banks and tangled copses of this romantic country were obliged to give place to deities very nearly resembling themselves in character who probably derive some of their attributes from their classic predecessors although more immediately allied to the barbarian conquerors we allude to the fairies which as received into the popular creed and as described by the poets who have made use of them as machinery are certainly among the most pleasing legacies of fancy dr leyden who exhausted on this subject as upon most others a profusion of learning found the first idea of the elfin people in the northern opinions concerning the dwergar or dwarves these were however it must be owned spirits of a coarser sort more laborious vocation and more malignant temper and in all respects less propitious to humanity than the fairies properly so called which were the invention of the celtic people and displayed that superiority of taste and fancy which with the love of music and poetry has been generally ascribed to their race through its various classes and modifications 
in fact there seems reason to conclude that these dwargar were originally nothing else than the diminutive natives of the lapish lettish and finnish nations who flying before the conquering weapons of the Aesai, sought the most retired regions of the north and there endeavoured to hide themselves from their eastern invaders they were a little diminutive race but possessed of some skill probably in mining or smelting minerals with which the country abounds perhaps also they might from their acquaintance with the changes of the clouds or meteorological phenomena be judges of weather and so enjoy another title to supernatural skill at any rate it has been plausibly supposed that these poor people who sought caverns and hiding-places from the persecution of the assay were in some respects compensated for inferiority in strength and stature by the art and power with which the superstition of the enemy invested them these oppressed yet dreaded fugitives obtained naturally enough the character of the german spirits called kobold from which the english goblin and the scottish bogle by some inversion and alteration of pronunciation are evidently derived the kobolds were a species of gnomes who haunted the dark and solitary places and were often seen in the mines where they seemed to imitate the labours of the miners and sometimes took pleasure in frustrating their objects and rendering their toil unfruitful sometimes they were malignant especially if neglected or insulted but sometimes also they were indulgent to individuals whom they took under their protection when a miner therefore hit upon a rich vein of ore the inference commonly was not that he possessed more skill industry or even luck than his fellow-workmen but that the spirits of the mine had directed him to the treasure the employment and apparent occupation of these subterranean gnomes or fiends led very naturally to identify the finn or laplander with the kobold but it was a bolder stretch of the imagination which confounded this reserved and sullen race with the livelier and gayer spirit which bears correspondence with the british fairy neither can we be surprised that the dwargar ascribed by many persons to this source should exhibit a darker and more malignant character than the elves that revel by moonlight in more southern climates according to the old norse belief these dwarves form the current machinery of the northern sagas and their inferiority in size is represented as compensated by skill and wisdom superior to those of ordinary mortals in the nibelungen lied one of the oldest romances of germany and compiled it would seem not long after the time of attila 
theodoric of Bern or of verona figures among a cycle of champions over whom he presides like the charlemagne of france or arthur of england among others vanquished by him is the elf-king or dwarf laren whose dwelling was in an enchanted garden of roses and who had a bodyguard of giants a sort of persons seldom supposed to be themselves conjurers he becomes a formidable opponent to theodoric and his chivalry but as he attempted by treachery to attain the victory he is when overcome condemned to fill the dishonourable yet appropriate office of buffoon and juggler at the court of verona such possession of supernatural wisdom is still imputed by the natives of the orkney and zetland islands to the people called drows being a corruption of dwargar or dwarfs and who may in most other respects be identified with the caledonian fairies lucas jacobson debis who dates his description of pharaoh from his pathmos in thorshaven march twelfth sixteen seventy dedicates a long chapter to the spectres who disturbed his congregation and sometimes carried off his hearers the actors in these disturbances he states to be the scow or bergen trolled that is the spirits of the woods and mountains sometimes called subterranean people and adds they appeared in deep caverns and among horrid rocks as also that they haunted the places where murders or other deeds of mortal sin had been acted they appear to have been the genuine northern dwarfs or trows another pronunciation of trolls and are considered by the reverend author as something very little better than actual fiends but it is not only or even chiefly to the gothic race that we must trace the opinions concerning the elves of the middle ages these as already hinted were deeply blended with the attributes which the celtic tribes had from the remotest ages ascribed to their deities of rocks valleys and forests we have already observed what indeed makes a great feature of their national character that the power of the imagination is peculiarly active among the celts and leads to an enthusiasm concerning national music and dancing national poetry and song the departments in which fancy most readily indulges herself the irish the welch the gael or scottish highlander all tribes of celtic descent assigned to the men of peace good neighbours or by whatever other names they called these sylvan pygmies more social habits and a course of existence far more gay than the sullen and heavy toils of the more saturnine dwargar their elves did not avoid the society of men though they behaved to those who associated with them with caprice which rendered it dangerous to displease them and although their gifts were sometimes valuable they were usually wantonly given and unexpectedly resumed 
the employment the benefits the amusements of the fairy court resembled the aerial people themselves their government was always represented as monarchical a king more frequently a queen of fairies was acknowledged and sometimes both held their court together their pageants and court entertainments comprehended all that the imagination could conceive of what was by that age accounted gallant and splendid at their processions they paraded more beautiful steeds than those of mere earthly parentage the hawks and hounds which they employed in their chase were of the first race at their daily banquets the board was set forth with a splendour which the proudest kings of the earth dared not aspire to and the hall of their dancers echoed to the most exquisite music but when viewed by the eye of a seer the illusion vanished the young knights and beautiful ladies showed themselves as wrinkled carls and odious hags their wealth turned into slate stones their splendid plate into pieces of clay fantastically twisted and their victuals unsavoured by salt prohibited to them we are told because an emblem of eternity became tasteless and insipid the stately halls were turned into miserable damp caverns all the delights of the elfin elysium vanished at once in a word their pleasures were showy but totally unsubstantial their activity unceasing but fruitless and unavailing and their condemnation appears to have consisted in the necessity of maintaining the appearance of constant industry or enjoyment though their toil was fruitless and their pleasures shadowy and unsubstantial hence poets have designed them as the crew that never rest besides the unceasing and useless bustle in which these spirits seemed to live they had propensities unfavourable and distressing to mortals one injury of a very serious nature was supposed to be constantly practised by the fairies against the human mortals that of carrying off their children and breeding them as beings of their race unchristened infants were chiefly exposed to this calamity but adults were also liable to be abstracted from earthly commerce notwithstanding it was their natural sphere with respect to the first it may be easily conceived that the want of the sacred ceremony of introduction into the christian church rendered them the more obnoxious to the power of those creatures who if not to be in all respects considered as fiends had nevertheless considering their constant round of idle occupation little right to rank themselves among good spirits and were accounted by most divines as belonging to a very different class an adult on the other hand must have been engaged in some action which exposed him to the power of the spirits and so as the legal phrase went taken in the manner sleeping on a fairy mount within which the fairy court happened to be held for the time was a very ready mode of obtaining a pass for elfland 
it was well for the individual if the irate elves were contented on such occasions with transporting him through the air to a city at some forty miles distance and leaving perhaps his hat or bonnet on some steeple between to mark the direct line of his course others when engaged in some unlawful action or in the act of giving way to some headlong and sinful passion expose themselves also to become inmates of fairyland the same belief on these points obtained in ireland glanville in his eighteenth revelation tells us of the butler of a gentleman a neighbour of the earl of orrery who was sent to purchase cards in crossing the fields he saw a table surrounded by people apparently feasting and making merry they rose to salute him and invited him to join in their revel but a friendly voice from the party whispered in his ear do nothing which this company invite you to accordingly when he refused to join in feasting the table vanished and the company began to dance and play on musical instruments but the butler would not take part in these recreations they then left off dancing and betook themselves to work but neither in this would the mortal join them he was then left alone for the present but in spite of the exertions of my lord orrery in spite of two bishops who were his guests at the time in spite of the celebrated mr greatrix it was all they could do to prevent the butler from being carried off bodily from amongst them by the fairies who considered him as their lawful prey they raised him in the air above the heads of the mortals who could only run beneath to break his fall when they pleased to let him go the spectre which formerly advised the poor man continued to haunt him and at length discovered himself to be the ghost of an acquaintance who had been dead for seven years you know added he i lived a loose life and ever since i have i been hurried up and down in a restless condition with the company you saw and shall be till the day of judgment he added that if the butler had acknowledged god in all his ways he had not suffered so much by their means he reminded him that he had not prayed to god in the morning before he met with his company in the field and moreover that he was then going on an unlawful business it is pretended that lord orrery confirmed the whole of this story even to having seen the butler raised into the air by the invisible beings who strove to carry him off only he did not bear witness to the passage which seems to call the purchase of cards an unlawful errand individuals whose lives had been engaged in intrigues of politics or stratagems of war were sometimes surreptitiously carried off to fairyland as alison pearson the sorceress who cured archbishop adamson averred that she had recognized in the fairy court the celebrated secretary lethington and the old knight of buclock 
the one of whom had been the most busy politician the other one of the most unwearied partisans of queen mary during the reign of that unfortunate queen upon the whole persons carried off by sudden death were usually suspected of having fallen into the hands of the fairies and unless redeemed from their power which it was not always safe to attempt were doomed to conclude their lives with them we must not omit to state that those who had an intimate communication with these spirits while they were yet inhabitants of middle-earth were most apt to be seized upon and carried off to elfland before their death the reason assigned for this kidnapping of the human race so peculiar to the elfin people is said to be that they were under a necessity of paying to the infernal regions a yearly tribute out of their population which they were willing to defray by delivering up to the prince of these regions the children of the human race rather than their own from this it must be inferred that they have offspring among themselves as it is said by some authorities and particularly by mr kirk the minister of aberfoyle he indeed adds that after a certain length of life these spirits are subject to the universal lot of mortality a position however which has been controverted and is scarcely reconcilable to that which holds them amenable to pay a tax to hell which infers existence as eternal as the fire which is not quenched the opinions on the subject of the fairy people here expressed are such as are entertained in the highlands and some remote quarters of the lowlands of scotland we know from the lively and entertaining legends published by mr crofton croker which though in most cases told with the wit of the editor and the humour of his country contain points of curious antiquarian information that the opinions of the irish are conformable to the account we have given of the general creed of the celtic nations respecting elves if the irish elves are anywise distinguished from those of britain it seems to be by their disposition to divide into factions and fight among themselves a pugnacity characteristic of the green isle the welch fairies according to john lewis barrister at law agree in the same general attributes with those of ireland and britain we must not omit the creed of the minxmen since we find from the ingenious researches of mr waldron that the isle of man beyond other places in britain was a peculiar depository of the fairy traditions which on the island being conquered by the norse became in all probability chequered with those of scandinavia from a source peculiar and more direct than that by which they reached scotland or ireland such as it was the popular system of the celts 
easily received the northern admixture of drowse and dwergar which gave the belief perhaps a darker colouring than originally belonged to the british fairyland it was from the same source also in all probability that additional legends were obtained of a gigantic and malignant female the hecat of this mythology who rode on the storm and marshalled the rambling host of wanderers under her grim banner this hag in all respects the reverse of the mab or titania of the celtic creed was called nicnevin in that later system which blended the faith of the celts and of the goths on this subject the great scottish poet dunbar has made a spirited description of this hecate writing at the head of witches and good neighbours fairies namely sorceresses and elves indifferently upon the ghostly eve of all hallow mass in italy we hear of the hags arraying themselves under the orders of diana in her triple character of hecate doubtless and herodias who were the joint leaders of their choir but we return to the more simple fairy belief as entertained by the celts before they were conquered by the saxons of these early times we can know little but it is singular to remark what light the traditions of scotland throw upon the poetry of the britons of cumberland then called reged merlin wilt or the wild is mentioned by both and that renowned wizard the son of an elf or fairy with king arthur the dubious champion of britain at that early period were both said by tradition to have been abstracted by the fairies and to have vanished without having suffered death just at the time when it was supposed that the magic of the wizard and the celebrated sword of the monarch which had done so much to preserve british independence could no longer avert the impending ruin it may be conjectured that there was a desire on the part of arthur or his surviving champions to conceal his having received a mortal wound in the fatal battle of camlin and to that we owe the wild and beautiful incident so finely versified by bishop percy in which in token of his renouncing in future the use of arms the monarch sends his attendant sole survivor of the field to throw his sword excalibur into the lake hard by twice eluding the request the esquire at last complied and threw the far-famed weapon into the lonely mirror a hand and arm arose from the water and caught excalibur by the hilt flourished it thrice and then sank into the lake the astonished messenger returned to his master to tell him the marvels he had seen but he only saw a boat at a distance push from the land and heard shrieks of females in agony and whether the king was there or not he never knew he never cold for ever since that doleful day was british arthur seen on mould
the circumstances attending the disappearance of merlin would probably be found as imaginative as those of arthur's removal but they cannot be recovered and what is singular enough circumstances which originally belonged to the history of this famous bard said to be the son of the demon himself have been transferred to a later poet and surely one of scarce inferior name thomas of ursuldoon the legend was supposed to be only preserved among the inhabitants of his native valleys but a copy as old as the reign of henry the seventh has been recovered the story is interesting and beautifully told and as one of the oldest fairy legends may well be quoted in this place thomas of ursuldone in lauderdale called the rhymer on account of his producing a poetical romance on the subject of tristram and isolt which is curious as the earliest specimen of english verse known to exist flourished in the reign of alexander the third of scotland like other men of talent of the period thomas was suspected of magic he was said also to have the gift of prophecy which was accounted for in the following peculiar manner referring entirely to the elfin superstition as true thomas we give him the epithet by anticipation lay on huntley bank a place on the descent of the eildon hills which raise their triple crest above the celebrated monastery of melrose he saw a lady so extremely beautiful that he imagined it must be the virgin mary herself her appointments however were rather those of an amazon or goddess of the woods her steed was of the highest beauty and spirit and at his mane hung thirty silver bells and nine which made music to the wind as she paced along her saddle was of royal bone ivory laid over with orfevery that is goldsmith's work her stirrups her dress all corresponded with her extreme beauty and the magnificence of her array the fair huntress had her bow in her hand and her arrows at her belt she led three greyhounds in a leash and three roches or hounds of scent followed her closely she rejected and disclaimed the homage which thomas desired to pay to her so that passing from one extremity to the other thomas became as bold as he had at first been humble the lady warns him that he must become her slave if he should prosecute his suit towards her in the manner he proposes before their interview terminates the appearance of the beautiful lady is changed into that of the most hideous hag in existence one side is blighted and wasted as if by palsy one eye drops from her head her colour as clear as the virgin silver is now of a dun leaden hue a witch from the spittle or almshouse would have been a goddess in comparison to the late 
beautiful huntress hideous as she was thomas's irregular desires had placed him under the control of this hag and when she bade him take leave of sun and of the leaf that grew on tree he felt himself under the necessity of obeying her a cavern received them in which following his frightful guide he for three days travelled in darkness sometimes hearing the booming of a distant ocean sometimes walking through rivers of blood which crossed their subterranean path at length they emerged into daylight in a most beautiful orchard thomas almost fainting for want of food stretches out his hand towards the goodly fruit which hangs around him but is forbidden by his conductress who informs him these are the fatal apples which were the cause of the fall of man he perceives also that his guide had no sooner entered this mysterious ground and breathed its magic air than she was revived in beauty equipage and splendour as fair or fairer than he had first seen her on the mountain she then commands him to lay his head upon her knee and proceeds to explain to him the character of the country yonder right-hand path she says conveys the spirits of the blast to paradise yon downward and well-worn way leads sinful souls to the place of everlasting punishment the third road by yonder dark break conducts to the milder place of pain from which prayer and mass may release offenders but see you yet a fourth road sweeping along the plain to yonder splendid castle yonder is the road to elfland to which we are now bound the lord of the castle is king of the country and i am his queen but thomas i would rather be drawn with wild horses than he should know what hath passed between you and me therefore when we enter yonder castle observe strict silence and answer no question that is asked at you and i will account for your silence by saying i took your speech when i brought you from middle-earth having thus instructed her lover they journeyed on to the castle and entering by the kitchen found themselves in the midst of such a festive scene as might become the mansion of a great feudal lord or prince thirty carcasses of deer were lying on the massive kitchen board under the hands of numerous cooks who toiled to cut them up and dress them while the gigantic greyhounds which had taken the spoil lay lapping the blood and enjoying the sight of the slain game they came next to the royal hall where the king received his loving consort without censure or suspicion knights and ladies dancing by threes reels perhaps occupied the floor of the hall and thomas the fatigues of his journey from the eildon hills forgotten went forward and joined in the revelry after a period however which seemed to him a very short one the queen spoke with him apart and bade him prepare to return to his own country now said the queen how long think you that you have been here certes fair lady answered thomas not above these seven days 
you are deceived answered the queen you have been seven years in this castle and it is full time you were gone know thomas that the fiend of hell will come to this castle to-morrow to demand his tribute and so handsome a man as you will attract his eye for all the world would i not suffer you to be betrayed to such a fate therefore up and let us be going these terrible news reconciled thomas to his departure from elfin land and the queen was not long in placing him upon huntley bank where the birds were singing she took a tender leave of him and to ensure his reputation bestowed on him the tongue which could not lie thomas in vain objected to this inconvenient and involuntary adhesion to veracity which would make him as he thought unfit for church or for market for king's court or for lady's bower but all his remonstrances were disregarded by the lady and thomas the rhymer whenever the discourse turned on the future gained the credit of a prophet whether he would or not for he could say nothing but what was sure to come to pass it is plain that had thomas been a legislator instead of a poet we have here the story of numa and Agaria. thomas remained several years in his own tower near ursuldown and enjoyed the fame of his predictions several of which are current among the country people to this day at length as the prophet was entertaining the earl of march in his dwelling a cry of astonishment arose in the village on the appearance of a hart and hind which left the forest and contrary to their shy nature came quietly onward traversing the village towards the dwelling of thomas the prophet instantly rose from the board and acknowledging the prodigy as the summons of his fate he accompanied the hart and hind into the forest and though occasionally seen by individuals to whom he has chosen to show himself has never again mixed familiarly with mankind thomas of ursuldown during his retirement has been supposed from time to time to be levying forces to take the field in some crisis of his country's fate the story has often been told of a daring horse-jockey having sold a black horse to a man of venerable and antique appearance who appointed the remarkable hillock upon eildon hills called the luckin hare as the place where at twelve o'clock at night he should receive the price he came his money was paid in ancient coin and he was invited by his customer to view his residence the trader in horses followed his guide in the deepest astonishment through several long ranges of stalls in each of which a horse stood motionless while an armed warrior lay equally still at the charger's feet all these men said the wizard in a whisper will awaken at the battle of sheriffmore at the extremity of this extraordinary depot hung a sword and a horn 
which the prophet pointed out to the horse-dealer as containing the means of dissolving the spell the man in confusion took the horn and attempted to wind it the horses instantly started in their stalls stamped and shook their bridles the men arose and clashed their armour and the mortal terrified at the tumult he had excited dropped the horn from his hand a voice like that of a giant louder even than the tumult around pronounced these words woe to the coward that ever he was born that did not draw the sword before he blew the horn a whirlwind expelled the horse-dealer from the cavern the entrance to which he could never again find a moral might be perhaps extracted from the legend namely that it is best to be armed against danger before bidding it defiance but it is a circumstance worth notice that although this edition of the tale is limited to the year seventeen fifteen by the very mention of the sheriff moor yet a similar story appears to have been current during the reign of queen elizabeth which is given by reginald scott the narrative is edifying as peculiarly illustrative of the mode of marring a curious tell in telling it which was one of the virtues professed by caius when he hired himself to king lear reginald scott incredulous on the subject of witchcraft seems to have given some weight to the belief of those who thought that the spirits of famous men do after death take up some particular habitations near cities towns and countries and act as tutelary and guardian spirits to the places which they loved while in the flesh but more particularly to illustrate this conjecture says he i could name a person who hath lately appeared thrice since his decease at least some ghostly being or other that calls itself by the name of such a person who was dead above a hundred years ago and was in his lifetime accounted as a prophet or predictor by the assistance of sublunary spirits and now at his appearance did also give strange predictions respecting famine and plenty war and bloodshed and the end of the world by the information of the person that had communication with him the last of his appearances was in the following manner i had been said he to sell a horse at the next market-town but not attaining my price as i returned home by the way i met this man who began to be familiar with me asking what news and how affairs moved through the country i answered as i thought fit withal i told him of my horse whom he began to cheapen and proceeded with me so far that the price was agreed upon so he turned back with me and told me that if i would go along with him i should receive my money on our way we went i upon my horse and he on another milk-white beast 
after much travel i asked him where he dwelt and what his name was he told me that his dwelling was a mile off at a place called farin of which place i had never heard though i knew all the country round about he also told me that he himself was that person of the family of learmonths so much spoken of as a prophet at which i began to be somewhat fearful perceiving we were on a road which i never had been on before which increased my fear and amazement more well on we went till he brought me underground i knew not how into the presence of a beautiful woman who paid the money without a word speaking he conducted me out again through a large and long entry where i saw above six hundred men in armour laid prostrate on the ground as if asleep at last i found myself in the open field by the help of the moonlight in the very place where i first met him and made a shift to get home by three in the morning but the money i had received was just double of what i esteemed it when the woman paid me of which at this instant i have several pieces to show consisting of nine pennies thirteen pence halfpennies etc it is a great pity that this horse-dealer having specimens of the fairy coin of a quality more permanent than usual had not favoured us with an account of an impress so valuable to medalists it is not the less edifying as we are deprived of the more picturesque parts of the story to learn that thomas's payment was as faithful as his prophecies the beautiful lady who bore the purse must have been undoubtedly the fairy queen whose affection though like that of his own heroine isolt we cannot term it altogether laudable seems yet to have borne a faithful and firm character i have dwelt at some length on the story of thomas the rhymer as the oldest tradition of the kind which has reached us in detail and as pretending to show the fate of the first scottish poet whose existence and its date are established both by history and records and who if we consider him as writing in the anglo-norman language was certainly one among the earliest of its versifiers but the legend is still more curious from its being the first and most distinguished instance of a man alleged to have obtained supernatural knowledge by means of the fairies whence or how this singular community derived their more popular common name we may say has not as yet been very clearly established it is the opinion of the learned that the persian word peri expressing an unearthly being of a species very similar will afford the best derivation if we suppose it to have reached europe through the medium of the arabians in whose alphabet the letter p does not exist so that they pronounce the word fairy instead of peri still there is something uncertain in this etymology we hesitate to ascribe either to the persians or 
the arabians the distinguishing name of an ideal commonwealth the notion of which they certainly did not contribute to us some are therefore tempted to suppose that the elves may have obtained their most frequent name from their being par excellence a fair or comely people a quality which they affected on all occasions while the superstition of the scottish was likely enough to give them a name which might propitiate the vanity for which they deemed the race remarkable just as in other instances they called the fays men of peace good neighbours and by other titles of the like import it must be owned at the same time that the words fay and fairy may have been mere adoptions of the french fee and fury though these terms on the other side of the channel have reference to a class of spirits corresponding not to our fairies but with the far different fata of the italians but this is a question which we willingly leave for the decision of better etymologists than ourselves End of letter four.